HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberto's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Edwin Ferrari, who is the executive head chef at the Scandinavian food market called Great Northern Food Hall at the Grand Central Terminal in Manhattan, which opened in June. And you might be wondering why Japanese has a great um, the guest specialized in Nordic cuisine, but there is a lot in common between Japanese and Nordic food culture. So today we'll talk about it, and uh, as well about Edwin's unique experience in Japanese cuisine, including his successful career as a corporate chef at Nobu Restaurant, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japanese is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as uh, iTunes and Stitcher podcasts. So please go to iTunes, uh, iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Japanese. Also, uh, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know and we can email us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org. And thank you so much. Now, let's start a conversation with Edwin Perai. Hello, Edwin. Welcome to Japaneats. Thank you for having me. So, um, I heard that uh, becoming a chef was your dream since you were very young. So, were you surrounded by food-oriented people when you grew up? Uh, you know, for the most part, uh, I got the cooking bug from my mother. Mm-hmm. I started helping her uh, when I was only three or four, so the story goes. And we would always help with dinner, etc. And then I had actually gotten a job while I was 13 years old, getting paid under the table, mm-hmm. uh, washing dishes at a local restaurant. Mm-hmm. Where, where, which place, where is it? Uh, it? It was actually in Chatham, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was about three towns away from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. 
and I would uh, ride my bike there every <laughs> night after school or on weekends to take some shifts. And uh, I was pr I was paid under the table because I was a little bit young to have a real job. Mm. So I washed dishes there and bus tables as well. And then uh, I also had some basic prep duties mm. while I was there. And then one night, one of the cooks didn't show up for a shift, and I just uh, they threw me on the line. And <laughs> here I am, 25 years later. Wow, that's exciting! Yeah. Right. So, um, so after that, how did you kind of formalize your chef career? Uh, I continued to cook uh, locally at some local restaurants, and then I actually had joined the military the army for a couple years to get some money for to pay for college for CIA mm. uh, so after the military I went to CIA uh, for two years and upon graduation I got a job another local job with a chef called Dennis Foy mm -hmm. uh, who was also in Chatham and I worked with him for about a year and a half and then he had actually suggested that I go travel to Europe Mm. Uh, and at that time, I really, I wasn't too interested in Europe, but I was very interested in Asia and Asian cuisines, and specifically Japan, because I had studied Aikido and Hapkido mm -hmm. growing up. Mm. Uh, so I was very interested in the arts and the culture of Japan, and I had a connection to go to Tokyo. So mm. I went to Tokyo. I basically just packed my bags, uh, my <laughs> knives, and a basic Japanese cookbook, and... Um, and I traveled to Tokyo. I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. I didn't even know that the job was going to be in Hokkaido. I didn't know it was going to be a kaiseki. I didn't even know what kaiseki was. Oh, wait, wait. So, so you went to Tokyo, and there's mm -hmm. someone in the restaurant business? Yeah, it was a, it was a friend of mine uh, who, she, she was an exchange student, and she had a connection with one of her cousins who was married to a chef. Mm. I didn't know that 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 chef worked in Hokkaido. Ah. So when uh, I went to Tokyo, I spent two or three weeks there. Uh, I, I had staged. I worked a few weeks in a sobaya restaurant, mm -hmm. learned how to make soba. And then basically they were like, put me on a plane. I didn't know where I was going. I could say like three <laughs> words in Japanese. And they put me on a plane and I got off and the chef was there in my... Uh, senpai and he was just like all right we're going to work and i just that's where i was wow. it was hilarious they got me an apartment uh i wasn't paid a salary but i got a room and board mm -hmm. uh for the year that i was there wow. and uh because at that time you couldn't get a visa to be a cook so i had to leave the country a few times uh and then come back so mm, interesting i didn't know that yeah i think um, you can get one now but you couldn't at that time that was in the early 90s mm -hmm. so um you know, the Hokkaido is uh, the northern island of Japan, which is, um, I think, people used to call it outside land, because yeah. so apart from Tokyo, not the mainland. It was very desolate. I was I was one of very few uh, non-Japanese people there mm. at that time. There was a lot of people, a lot of non-Japanese in, Ho in uh, Tokyo, but not really Hokkaido or mm. Sapporo. Right. So you uh, worked at the Kaiseki restaurant, you said? Correct. Mm. Wow. So it must be very different. I mean, the soba... The shop is very traditional. It was a good first step, but then right. Kaiseki. Yeah, Kaiseki. It was. I'm amazed that I was lucky enough to just, you know, I just fell into it. Uh, and they were all the Japanese people there were so cordial. Thank God that uh, my friend, whose cousin was a chef there, 
um, and they treated me amazingly. They they would write down all the because I couldn't read Japanese obviously either, <laughs> so they would write down all the menu items uh, from the whole menu on little place cards. And when they got an order, they would. It was also in English, so then they would pass me the place card and tell me which one it was. Mm. And uh, I mean, they took me, and I, I pretty much slept at the chef's house for a few weeks till they got me my apartment, which was basically the size of a closet, <laughs> with like just enough si- uh, room for like a futon and uh, a refrigerator, and that was it. So mm. right. So the for listeners who are not familiar with uh, kaiseki, how how did you find kaiseki cuisine? Uh, I, it was. The way I would describe it now is a very an uber seasonal tasting menu mm. using uh, basic Japanese cooking techniques. Mm. Uh, that's the best way to describe it now. And it would be steaming, grilling. Um, it would be raw. You, you, we wouldn't do sushi, but you would do sashimi. That's traditional mm. kaiseki. They don't. I, I'm sure now maybe they do uh, sushi as well, or it's like a. A different version of it, so you would it would be anywhere between five and twenty different courses mm. based on the seasons. And I mean, they were uber seasonal. There would be one week where fish would be in season, and the next week they were like, "Yeah, that's not in season anymore." <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. I mean, at, at the time, I didn't really understand it, but when I came back, obviously, mm. a few years later, I did. Right. So, um, so what what do you think uh, you learned from uh, the restaurant? Uh, simplicity. Definitely, um, in Japanese cuisine, we only use we use very few, especially in kaisakiya cuisine. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this was 20 years ago. I'm sure maybe now uh, they may be influenced a little bit more from the outside. But at that time, it was very traditional. Very few ingredients. You would season with just salt, soy, uh, dashi, and I'm and I mean we would season with just a couple pieces of salt. Difference, mm. and that was a huge, uh, that was a huge learning curve for me because just the, the, pinpoint accuracy of seasoning mm. was amazing. So, and also the way they would treat and respect ingredients, uh, the local ingredients as well as the fish and everything. It was like almost like a religious experience in a way. Mm. Yeah, one thing I noticed that the relationship between, you know, relationship between farmers, fishermen, all those. Uh, you know, whoever provides food ingredients tend to be closer in Japan with chefs. Yeah, def- I mean, especially in Hokkaido because you're you're never that far from the sea, mm. and they would just bring it into our back door. And uh, we, it was also a very very small restaurant, so they would bring only one or two fish, and we would take those fish and uh, treat them very well. And mm. uh, yeah, we would know by the day we would be getting calls from the boat saying what they have available <laughs> and then we would be making the menu at that moment wow that sounds like a dream for yeah. chef right okay so um so after you came back to the states from japan you joined the nobu restaurant mm-hmm. I, I was a sushi apprentice for about uh, nine months mm-hmm. and it wasn't that far from nobu it, and actually the woman who had owned it used to work for the same restaurant group uh that's partner at nobu so one night Nobu actually came in with the general manager uh, because they they weren't even open yet and they came in to have sushi at our restaurant and I didn't even know who Nobu was but at that time because I was a sushi apprentice they came in late and uh, my job at the end of the night was no matter how much rice was left I had to use it practicing making nigiri sushi or rolls Mm. so at that time there was a whole bunch of rice because we weren't that busy and I had like about 
250 nigiri sushi rolls lined up. <laughs> <laughs> he just came up to me and said, do you want a job? <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah. I didn't know who he was, but I was like, uh, yeah, sure. And then I went to uh, Nobu, which was only maybe four blocks away from there because uh, the restaurant I was working at was in Soho. Mm. And uh, I interviewed, and I was actually the only non-Japanese guy there uh, in the kitchen wow. for at least a year and a half, two years. Mm. So you kind of... Uh the key point person to bridge two different groups yeah, of chefs. I get, well, yeah, because later on I got uh, the position of back house manager and then I had uh, also got uh, the, the opportunity to open uh, his restaurants. In the first one we opened outside of New York was in London mm. and then I opened three or four more for him, uh, Las Vegas, Miami, mm. California, and, the other one, and another one in New York. Right. So, um, so I heard that you were there uh, for nine years. Uh, I believe eight years. Yes. Wow. So, what what was your takeaway? What did you learn from the experience? <laughs> uh, you know, is is very interesting. When when we first started Nobu, uh, we were doing really basic stuff. We weren't really doing the tasting menus that uh, they do now and that they've became famous for. Uh, we were doing tasting menus, but it was only maybe five or seven courses, and it was Nobu's key dishes, uh, signature dishes. But what had happened is uh, we had some very talented chefs there, uh, me, Morimoto, uh, and a few others. And we were given, after we had worked there a while, we were given uh, the leeway to try and come up with our own dishes. Mm. So from I started out in the kitchen, but then I uh, became the manager, and then eventually the executive chef and the corporate chef opening his restaurants. Uh, I learned, um, for the most part, how to make American people happy. Mm. <laughs> with uh, with we we did have traditional Japanese cuisine, but it was also tweaked in a way that. Uh, they would really they would enjoy it more. It was more exciting in the mouth, mm. and I also learned a lot about kitchen design and restaurant management. Mm. So the that's an interesting point that you made uh, the food more pleasing to American palate. What do you mean more spicy or? No, we Nobu used. Uh, I mean yuzu was a brand new thing at mm. that point. Right. Uh, nobody had really ever heard of it. Mm. Uh, so yuzu citrus. Yeah. Geez. These are citrus. Uh, we were using some Japanese spice that maybe they, they weren't quite used to. Uh, yeah, we just made it a little bit more exciting and I don't want to say masked the flavor of some of the raw fish and stuff, but we definitely accented it mm. a little bit more. Uh, but this was 20 years ago, so I think the American palate now has changed and evolved into understanding uh, what it is they need to appreciate. Because right. uh, I think Nov um, contributed for this country... You know, by providing that kind of foundation to Yeah, he feel. started that whole movement. Right. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing person. Right. And then the Morimoto kind of follow the same. And it's kind of a school. Yeah, like, Morimoto's not... I mean, he was also uh, obviously a huge part of uh, the direction that we were going at that time. And then he had gotten a, um, the Iron Chef deal with uh, Japan. Mm. And then they had bought... And then I believe Food Network bought... Iron Chef from them. Right. So, yeah, he's had a pretty good career, pretty pretty good culinary career and TV career. Mm, right. So it's something making everything approachable. Mm. That's a yeah, very he's very good point. at that, too. Right. Okay. And uh, so, um, by the way, it's interesting that you say kitchen design, right? 
I heard uh, the kitchen design in Japan is pretty different from the American kitchen. Yeah, yeah. How would I even say it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It's it's simpler and it's tighter. Um, in well, I guess in New York it's also the same thing. Where we're we're very small. We have very small spaces, and we have to work within parameters of what we're given. That was also the case in any major city uh, in Japan. Mm -hmm. Out in the country is a little bit different, but they also they don't have as many bells and whistles as maybe we would be have here in America. Mm. At least they didn't at that time. Right. Yeah. The, the one thing um, it's uh, kind of unrelated, but unrelated. So I heard in Japan it's much easier to open physically open a restaurant because regulation is kind of more organized, so you don't have to wait and wait. Uh, for one thing and the other thing. Yeah, the, the, uh, the Nobu we opened in Japan definitely happened a lot quicker and with a lot less headaches than the ones we opened in America and especially in New York. Right, yeah. Okay, so, um, and then in 2005, you opened a Mission Start Italian restaurant, Del Posto, uh, with Maria Vitali and Lydia Jobastianich. Mm -hmm. So why Italian? Uh, you know, I was working... I was working down uh, in southern Jersey, southern New Jersey, and I had my own restaurant called Mix, which was uh, a play on uh, Nobu's aesthetics and taste profiles, where it was, it was Spanish and Asian. I had my own sushi bar, my own kitchen, everything, and I had a three-year contract there, and my contract was up. Uh, Mario was opening what he had was trying to do is opening the first four-star Italian restaurant mm. uh, in the country. And I very much wanted to be a part of that. I am Italian. I'm third-generation Italian-American. And I had just thought that uh, that would be a very good next step for me. Mm. Nobu and I, actually, I had uh, evolved a Nobu into a Japanese-Italian style of restaurant that we had always discussed. It was also actually going to be called Nobulino. <laughs> and and uh, we we worked on it for a couple of years, and he sent me to Italy f a few times, and we we had uh, worked on making Italian food accessible, but with a Japanese aesthetic and the flavor profiles that Nobu typically used, and it was amazing. But the the partners decided to go in another direction, mm -hmm. and I was still had I had the Italian bug. I just wanted to do Italian food because it was my heritage. Mm. So I decided that uh, that would be something very good for me. Mm. I was the last person hired on that team. I was very lucky. Uh, Mario had all of his uh, heavy hitters there. All the sous chefs and chef cuisines from his other restaurants came, and we were all working in the kitchen at the same time. It was one of the awesome, most awesome jobs I ever had. Mm. It was great. Right. But it's just uh, very interesting that Italian cuisine and Japanese cuisine are somewhat in common because it's all based on ingredients and simple not many items on, on the plate. No, I, I had always uh, worked within the confines of three elements uh, per plate, per dish, and that's definitely something I learned uh, in Japan, mm. and I carried that over into other cuisines that I've done, and it works quite well. Right. Okay. So, and you also worked at uh, Morimoto uh, in Philadelphia and at other more, more than Asian restaurants and uh, Latin cuisine, working with Aaron Sanchez. And right before you joined uh, Great Northern Food Fall, you con consulted for a sustainable bakery. So, what kind of philosophy or curiosity have been leading you to the diverse culinary <laughs> fields? Uh, you know, I, I had actually traveled to Colorado where I worked with uh, local farmers, mm. and we were doing uh, value added 
products for the farmers because when you're a small farmer and you have um, all your crops essentially, you're not you're not trying to dilute it in any way. So all your crops are ready at the same time. Or you, if you're a butcher and you're butchering the whole animal, you know you have the prime cuts, but then you have like seventy percent of the other animal. That you're like, what do we do with it? Mm. So I was, we were trying to um, help them out in creating value-added products for them, such as we would take all their ground beef and make maybe taco fillings out of it and then cryovac it and freeze it. Mm. And then they would be able to sell it at the markets. Uh, When I came back from there, a friend of mine, uh, Jessica Isaacs, uh, was trying to open a bakery, and she needed a partner. Actually, we're still partners in the bakery. Mm. It's called Coco uh, in Jersey City, and that is uh, also a sustainable bakery. We do our best. Uh, to try and be sustainable at least mm. and um, that was pretty much the got me into trying to help out uh, farmers local farmers local butchers mm. so it's uh, one direction I think it's like kind of you're carrying from uh, the Kaiseki restaurant in Japan and some kind of consistency I feel mm, I hope so right okay um, so let's take a quick break here and when we come back uh, we'll talk about what is in common between Japanese Nordic cuisine? So please stay with us. And this one is called Awake by EULA. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from our studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Kadaima, and my guest today is Edwin Ferrari, who is executive head chef at a Scandinavian food market, Great Northern Food Hall, at the Grand Central Terminal in Manhattan. And Edwin worked at a number of Japanese restaurants in the past, including Nobu Restaurant as the corporate chef. Now, um, you are the executive head chef at uh, the Northern European Food Market, Great Northern Food Hall. So um, I love the market, by the way, and the food is amazing. Thank you. So um, could you tell us about what uh, a Great Northern Food Hall is for our listeners who have never been there? Uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a food hall that is situated in Vanderbilt uh, Hall in Grand Central Terminal. And it was founded by Klaus Meyer 
who is also co-founder of NOMA in Copenhagen. And he brought his philosophy and sensibilities to New York and wanted to introduce them to the New York American market. Um, we have about seven pavilions mm -hmm. that serve anywhere between uh, warm sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, small broad. We have porridges. Uh, we have a bar, and we also have a pavilion called Almanac that is a vegetable-driven seasonal uh, restaurant as well. Mm. Okay, so so basically, it's a kind of semi-open space, and then you pass by, yes. and then you get well, to you, yeah. If, as you go through uh, Vanderbilt Hall, I guess would be on your left or your right, whichever. I mean, you can't miss it, uh, and it's beautiful. Actually, Klaus Meyer's wife designed the whole thing, so it's great. Mm. Right, and then it's uh, you can just go quick buy for sandwiches, or there's a nice bar, so you can enjoy. Mm, yeah. Different kinds of things. So we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, we have the first two pavilions. Uh, we have something. It's called Brownsville, and we do we roast our own coffee, mm. and we bake everything on premises. Mm. We have a kitchen uh, about half a flight down, in the back where we have our own bakery and our own production kitchen where we make everything from scratch. Mm. So, um, how come uh, did you end up working at uh, such a great place? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's a funny story. They, um, I was introduced to Klaus um, through an agency, and uh, I didn't know much about uh, Nordic cuisine at all. Mm. But uh, I guess Klaus had, had does know something about Japanese cuisine. He knew that there were similarities, so that's how I got my foot in the door. Mm. I had to do a tasting, which uh, I didn't have a kitchen at the time, so I actually spent three days at with him and his family at his house. <laughs> uh, and, of course, he gave me no parameters. He's just, like, cook. So I I did, I guess, philosophically speaking, I did Japanese food, but I used Nordic, what I thought were Nordic ingredients and local ingredients. Mm. Um, I, I did a little research on uh, Danish food and Nordic cuisines and the traditions and styles uh, and techniques, and I tried to do my best to... Uh, try and mimic that or at least interpret it mm. and I guess I did a pretty decent job because here I am talking to you right <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was fun yeah right so um the Nordic cuisine has been very popular lately and since especially since Noma opened in mm. Copenhagen and what is uh, the basic idea of uh, this new Nordic cuisine uh you know we call our our cuisine New York Nordic and uh the philosophy behind it, and Klaus will also tell you that the philosophy isn't doesn't mean that it's only from food from the Nordic countries. It's basically a philosophy of using the food the way it was intended. You want to have uh, taste the clean flavors, using traditional techniques, and using what's around you in order mm -hmm. to create the meal. Uh, and since we're in New York, obviously we're using some local ingredients, local farmers, local fish. And it's turned out quite well. Mm, okay, because as far as I understand, um, I think in 2005 there's uh, the Nordic Council of Ministers started mm. uh, the food movement, a new Nordic food manifesto, and it right. was. I think the intention was to not to lose the traditional Scandinavian food culture, but I think, uh, well, I believe one of the reasons uh, Nordic cuisine became one of the keywords in the food business is it's applicable to anywhere. Like local, sustainable. It is. It, I mean, most countries at that time were actually trying to get in touch with their roots 
and uh, tradi- and food traditions. Mm. And uh, I think there's uh, the Danish just did it did it right, and they actually promoted it and themselves very well. Mm. Uh, and obviously, Noma helped a great deal. Right. So it's considered the best restaurant in the world. Uh, so that was a big help. Mm. Well, interesting that you know you said uh, you cooked at the Klaus house, and basically you're cooking Japanese cuisine, mm. and you know you're working at this Nordic food market. So it's it's there's it, something in common. That's why I thought it was so much in common between Nordic and Japanese cuisine. Yeah, I was. I mean, you you can use like for instance, we use uh, in Nordic cuisine. We also use seaweeds. Mm. We use kombu, wakame, and dolson. And I use them primarily the same way I would pretty much use them in Japanese cuisine. Uh, for you're you're essentially getting the raw ingredients and using them to expand and play on maybe one or two other local ingredients. I I use the dulce. I actually fried it mm. and I put it on breadsticks with skewer. Mm. And it was only three elements, but you know. Oh no! I also used raw fish as well. I used uh, fluke. Mm, okay, <laughs> raw fish. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it was probably I did use a lot of raw fish actually. Mm. That, actually, that day it snowed and I had oysters, so I went outside and got a big clump of snow and put it on plates, and then I had raw oysters uh, on snow. It was it was interesting. So I think uh, yeah, that tasting I think went pretty well. It was mm. fun, and then that carried into. What we're doing now in the hall, and also as well as Agern. Hmm. I just think that you know the the seaweed. You said using Japanese way means like dashi, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gunner, Gunner, the chef, uh, Gunner and Joe. They use Gunner is a yeah the Agern, yeah. the sister restaurant Agern. The also executive in, chef of uh, Agern. Right. Also he, in the Grand Central Terminal. Correct. Yeah, right. it's right next to us. It's an amazing restaurant. Yeah, we, we share the same rest, uh, same same kitchen. Mm. So he, uh, they use kombu as if uh, Japanese. They use a make a kombu dashi. Mm. Okay, but classically in Nordic cuisine, how do you use uh, uh, seaweed? Yeah, you know, they use it in salads, soups, uh, porridges. That's the way that I've learned it. Mm. Um, it's yeah, they just use it as an ingredient. Mm. I don't really know if they use it as an accent per se. I think they use it as like they're actually eating the seaweed mm. as a vegetable. Right. Okay. So, all right. And uh, so the so Klaus Meyer, he's such a um, forward-minded person. So it's really advocating uh, mm. local sustainable. And then you said the coffee beans you roast locally. Brownsville, yeah. We're right. building a roaster in Brownsville. Mm. And I also heard that for, for the grains, uh, you guys grow on your own grains? Yes, in Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We just started. I, you know, I'm not that close with the harvest, how that happened, how it was uh how it harvested this year, mm. if it was successful or not, but I believe it was. I think it takes a few years to get that crop up and going mm. because they brought the grains from uh, Denmark. Okay. And then it was, it was a local from Denmark, and I think it came, came out pretty well in mm. Connecticut. Right. Okay. And as for the menu at, at uh, the Great Northern Food Hall, so what's, what, what part is Nordic and what part is no, uh, local? It, say that again? Sorry. You know, the menu items out, out of seven pavilions. You know, I uh, I saw open sandwiches in mm-hmm. uh, very Scandinavian style. But uh, okay. So, I mean, we have traditional porridges. 
which would probably be considered more Nordic, although we use local ingredients and, and also local brands. Uh, we have the open face sandwiches, which is uh, very Danish. But then we have a pavilion where we uh, make warm sandwiches and mm. flatbreads, which would probably be considered more like a local New Yorky type thing. Uh, we also do egg sandwiches in the morning, which uh, they really don't do mm. in Denmark. So that's kind of a Klaus had this idea. He's like, well, it's a very when he came here, everybody was like, you have to have an egg sandwich and you have to have bagels. <laughs> so in place of bagels, we actually do something called a morning bun, which is Danish, actually. Uh, we we have uh, butter and cheese and we use smoked salmon and pretty much the same uh, way you would serve bagels in New York, but we're using our own uh, sourdough bread. Mm-hmm. and That's very successful. Uh, the egg sandwiches are successful. And uh, like I said, we're, all, we're trying to use the local... Uh, vegetables when we can and try and do flavor profiles that are a little bit more customary to Americans mm. for those two. Right. Interesting. So, you know, you are at Nobu and then applying local elements to uh, Japanese cuisine. So you're mm. doing kind of the same thing at yes, the Great exactly. Food Hall. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to, trying to stay within the season. Uh, and then try it within Klaus's philosophy. Mm. And he gives us the parameters, and then me and the chefs just go for it. Right. I think uh, you, you also try to uh, uh, grow their own dairy cow. Is that true? We have a dairy program that uh, is still under development in Long Island City. Mm. So we're making our own butter. Uh, we're making umer. And uh, some fermented dairy products, but for the most part, uh, we're trying to get that started so we can do have all of our dairy come from that commissary. Mm, okay. So, do you have any Japanese elements you incorporate into, you know, because Japanese cuisine is becoming like a local food culture too? Yeah, uh, that, that we incorporate into the food hall? Mm-hmm. I do not. Only I, I didn't believe that the. I needed to or wanted to do that. I didn't want to dilute the waters in any way. Right. So I, I don't have soy sauce or uh, ginger or anything like that. I keep it very simple. I'm trying to use uh, whatever ingredients I would be able to get mm. in Denmark, but also here that wouldn't obviously be uh, Japanese. Mm. Right. So still, this sounds like uh, the keyword local sustainable cuisine, seasonal. The yeah, it makes sense. Uh, it's gonna—that's the way it's gonna stay. I'm mm-hmm. sure for a while. I don't see it going back to what it was twenty, thirty years ago. Right, because all consumers are looking for it, and then everywhere in the world, I think, seems like. Yeah, I mean, it tastes better. It looks better. It's cheaper in season. It just totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you predict, uh, you know, this uh, New York City food trend? You know this direction, um, very food specific, uh, the cuisine specific, Nordic cuisine, and this place Japanese cuisine. Like Japanese restaurant used to be Japanese restaurant. It's now tempura mm. place, yakitori place, sushi place. Yeah, it's it's getting uh, it's evolving into more of what it is in Japan. The individual cooking techniques having uh, a stage mm. all to its own. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't have seen that twenty, even ten years ago. Mm. Actually. Uh, yeah, there's soba. Well, we actually did have soba restaurants uh, 15, 20 years ago in New York. But now, like you said, tempura, um, a, uh, not soba, what's, 
another noodle place opened up in Union Square. What's uh, udon, called? Uh, Tsurutontan, udon yeah, place. Have you been there? No, I haven't oh. yet. Yeah, oh my God, it was the biggest bowl of udon I ever saw in my life. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It's American, localized size. Right, so uh, and I believe they make their own noodles as well. So yeah, those type of restaurants you wouldn't have seen here. So I think that's really great. And also local, as far as Italian cuisine goes, it's more uh, localized, different areas of Italy, mm. the, the specific dishes from that area instead of just generalized. Mm. Why do you think it's happening? Because, you know, maybe consumers are more informed about the differences? Yeah, well, it's in New York, uh, we are uh, an educated consumer, and we are always looking for the next thing. And we, we, we didn't have too much evolution, uh, at least in... in in restaurants for a while it was more like what basically a bare, basically a generic style of cooking and now I just think people are looking for more specialized mm. uh, areas mm. and they want to just uh, experience that like they don't have to travel they can get it right here in New York mm. right well I just want to quickly go back to you know what you said about kaiseki like three elements on the plate mm. right and it sounds like you still keep that philosophy when you come up with dishes? I, I try, you know, there's a there's a philosophy of thinking that you don't want any more than three bites mm. for a dish and three, maybe four elements. Obviously, you can tweak it. I, I, you would never see me make anything with 12 elements. That would be crazy. Uh, and your mouth can only discern so many things. And if you're using very simple ingredients and they're fresh you want them to taste the carrot or taste the pepper mm. or taste the olive oil uh, that you're using or the cheese so for the most part uh, you just need to keep it that way so they can experience more mm. um, because tasting menus also are a pretty big deal right now right. and you, can, you can't do 15 dishes with you know <laughs> 8 different elements on each dish that would be crazy so right. you, you get simplify confused. it right. right yeah by the fourth dish you'd be bored mm. right especially um, when you get the, the best ingredients from local farmers you don't want to mix you them. want to highlight that and show that uh, that's exactly what you're doing mm. as opposed to and plus the ingredients are so good now you don't really have to mask uh, the flavors anymore mm. so less is more just to focus on mm. what's on the plate Right. Yeah, we're very lucky to be at this time. Right, right, exactly. I think uh, the farmer's market is really helping because we consumers support farmers. And I think there's statistics that um, 90% of farmers, uh, bef- I think um, when the farmer's market started in New York City, all farmers are suffering because they couldn't afford marketing their products. Mm. And then they're dying. Then the, you know, the green market opened up. The marketing... Was the first one in Union Square? I think so. Right. Right. It was 1985 or something. Yeah. Like long I used time. to go there every every week for Nobu. Oh, okay. <laughs> and this was in the 90s, and I was like, there weren't too many chefs there. There were some chefs from around Union Square, obviously, mm. and then uh, a few of us that were kind of uh, proactive in mm. working with farmers. Uh, I, I We had also gone up to upstate New York and tried to get them to grow some Japanese like vegetables and shiso and all this other stuff so mm. uh, yeah it was an interesting time it's glad to see that 20 years later everybody's cotton on and right. on the same boat mm-hmm. it's exciting yeah still I think uh, it's uh, the chef's kind of community place and I, I heard uh, the dum- um, 
uh, Dan Kluger of uh, ABC Kitchen. Now he's opening his own place, but he was recruited by uh, John George. John George mm. is looking at him always. He's buying excellent local products. So yeah. he's like, oh, this is a guy. He it's was a great recruited. restaurant. Right. So, right. so uh, what's your plan for the next? Uh, well, I'm going to stay with Klaus for a while, okay. obviously. Uh, so it's more like what is his plan mm-hmm. or what is our plan together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still trying to get the food hall up and running. We've only been open for six months, mm-hmm. five or six months. And um, he also has some other projects in the works. Uh, he must see, be, right? <laughs> <Sorry>. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a, we have a new project every month. <laughs> but we, just, we have a, a bakery in Williamsburg, and we also have another restaurant in Greenpoint that we're about to open. Uh, and we have this commissary and another, another, we also have a bakery commissary. So, yeah, mm-hmm. he's going to keep me busy for a while. Right. And he, he does, uh, the commissary, is that uh, for, you know, the young kids who have the past records? No, of- we, Brownsville is, is our culinary school okay. that, we're, that we're trying to put um, some students through. Mm-hmm. Once they graduate, I don't think we've even had a graduating, we've only had a few classes. Then we will place them at our commissary. They've worked at our commissary already, mm. uh, but the whole idea is we can place them in some of our projects mm. to give them uh, jobs and a chance to grow in this, with this career. Mm. Um, yep, that's it. Right, that's a bigger picture, sure. other than just supplying food to. Yeah, he all, Klaus always has the big picture. Mm. Right. Hopefully, you get there. Right. Well, please keep us posted. Of course. Right. Okay, so thank you for joining us today, Edwin. Thank you. Right. So listeners, if you'd like to know more about Edwin's work, please visit uh, greatnorthernfood.com. Um, that is one word, greatnorthernfood.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for guests or topics for the show, um, please contact us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays, always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes and Stitcher podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. And today's show was made possible by Corin and our engineer is David Tatasioret. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.